0: Black Doctors podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. Season two provides more episodes and features a wider variety of professions. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Welcome back to this episode of the Black Doctors podcast. Today I'm privileged to be talking with Dr. Courtney Scrubs, she is a physician as well as a lawyer. We're going to be able to talk to her about her life and uh, how she's come to her chosen profession. Dr. Scrubs, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, and and of course, please call me, call me Courtney. Okay, Courtney, yeah, call me Stephen. So, as a physician and a lawyer. Um, You're currently practicing as a corporate counsel in the life sciences department at a firm in in, uh, Massachusetts.
1: Yes. So I kind of refer to myself as a medical school graduate. I make that distinction because like we discussed earlier, I I didn't choose to go into a residency. So I haven't been trained and, and licensed. I have so much respect and admiration for my colleagues who have devoted their life to medicine, then I want to kind of make the distinction that I'm not really there yet. So I don't, I don't necessarily call myself a physician. I call myself a medical graduate, but very firmly stand in my role as a lawyer and as a a corporate lawyer. So that's one. And then the other thing I would say is um, I don't work at a firm. I used to work at a firm. Mm -hmm. But the very cool thing about my job is that I work in-house as a member of a larger business uh, corporation business team, so it has a little bit of a of a business and strategic partnership flavor to it than if I was working in a outside counsel law firm.
0: Yeah. So, can you describe that difference between a what? I mean, I didn't know there was a difference between a firm versus in-house counsel. What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So, so basically, uh, I can give you an example that maybe you can identify with. So, in a hospital, there are lawyers who work for the hospital. There are employees of the hospital. They handle only the hospital's matters. They represent the hospital either in litigation or if there's a contract, a new doctor that's coming on, they they will handle drafting and reviewing the contract for the hospital. Um, But because the matters that a hospital might have are so vast and sometimes require deep, deep levels of expertise, um, then Outside, inside counsel, in-house counsel, might refer out hmm. a matter or partner with outside counsel in a firm. You know, an in-house counsel's department might be uh, anywhere from three to twenty people, um, but for a massive organization, they need far more lawyers with broader expertise for matters that they come up. So, outside counsel folks work in a firm they take matters sort of one at a time from clients and um, they basically bolster, you know, the efforts of in-house counsel. Is that clear?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. So what do you, what's a typical day like as an in-house counsel?
1: Yeah. So, so it's, it changes from day to day. My current role, I support a a large pharmaceutical company and it's a a large international pharmaceutical company, I should say. And so my clients, is always the company, but my um, the cli- the people, the individual clients that I work with from day to day are also members of the the company's team. So they may be business people, um, or they may be other lawyers. So I'm usually serving someone who works for the company, not someone external to the company. Mm. That's one. Usually, it's it's a counselor role. You know, someone has a question or someone has a problem, and um, you know, and and I have to kind of look into it and sort of give an answer. That's the big, big picture. More specifically, my, my last several years, last four years or so have been really focused on uh, pharmaceutical man- manufacturing on a global context. And so I might have a client in, in Europe um, or a client in Asia that needs to contract with another pharmaceutical company and work out the the deal the the terms of some type of, you know, uh manufacturing transaction. And so I would be the lawyer on that transaction to represent my company in the in the negotiation wow. and in the drafting and execution of the contract. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting job when we're doing that sort of work. Um and it's definitely not something I ever thought was ever on my radar when I decided to go so to medical school. It was just something I didn't even know sort of happened or existed. Yeah. So it's been a eye-opening experience for sure.
0: So do you have any connections for this uh, coronavirus vaccine?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, um, you know, I think, I, I think I'm think i in the same boat that you're in, Stephen. I mean, I'm sure people think that you have a connection because you're a physician. So Um, And maybe you you're probably closer to it than I am. I am aware, probably a little bit more aware than the average person on development, drug development, and and more specifically the process that it takes to um, to develop something in a lab and and then take it out and test it with uh, with animals. If you're going to do that, test with people and getting through approvals, the FDA, and so on and so forth, and and all the ways that that can go wrong. Yeah, and so. That's the only connection I have to the, to the information. But unfortunately, no connection to the product uh, we'll, we'll Nothing work, at all.
0: We'll work together and get, and get the hookup. So, when it comes okay. down to, to becoming a fish, physician and a lawyer, we talked briefly about this earlier. But at what point did you decide that you wanted it to be both?
1: Yeah. So, actually, it was my first year, uh, my first year of medical school. Um, you may have heard of the Dr. Cameron Lee Matthews, uh-huh. who is a pastor. Uh huh, past president of the SNMA, the Student National Medical Association. I became acquainted acquainted with her before my first year, right before my first year, and during my first year as I was involved in SNMA. And, you know, I was really inspired by um, her journey, her path, and, you know, her boldness to sort of carve out her own space to do what she wanted to do. And then realized that it was a thing, you know, that there were others who chose to add and amplify, you know, their aspirations in medicine with this other discipline. And and so I found as I got to know more and more people like that, that, that were dual degreeers in that space, um, that they were a lot like me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we thought similarly, we had similar interests. And uh, so I thought, okay, I think this is actually my tribe. Like this is something that I really should consider. So it was really my first year of med school that I decided that I would eventually do it. I just didn't know when. Yeah. But later on in my third year uh, is when I talked to my my deans at my medical school and and let them know, okay, I think I'm ready to to make the transition. And that came from the council of others who had made this journey um, and had, you know, said this is the best time to so go after third year. So you have the benefit of clinical experience, but you, you know, if you decide to go to residency, you don't have the gap of three years from right. fourth year to residency. So, yeah, ironically, as I look to to what the horizon, what may be on the horizon, there's still gaps. There's still that big window of time where I focus solely on, on practicing law. But that was the counsel, and I thought it was good counsel. So that's when I made the decision. I'm sure that your next question is going to be why, right?
0: Yes, the next question will be why. But before you answer that, for those that don't know, the SNMA or the Student National Medical Association is an incredible organization that represents underrepresented minority medical students and helps uh, increase diversity of medicine. It's been around since 1964 accomplishing those goals. And you can see how this pipeline and this program of leadership and guidance has helped so many physicians and so many minority um, Positions get to where they want to be in life, just like with uh, Dr. Scrubs. But yes, uh, continuing on with uh, the why.
1: The why yeah and, and, and just to, to plug you know to, to echo what you said about the SMA, it's you know it really was pivotal in my experience as um, a medical student. It really helped me develop skills that I use in my my current role as an attorney, uh, the organizational skill, the big picture perspective, learning to influence people, how to motivate people, um, you know, how to see beyond people's um, stated uh, uh, profession or stated skill set to be able to see other things that they can do, their real skills, you know, kind of behind their title um, and, and align them with others and and put them in teams to really get the best outcome. I mean, I just, there's, there's a long, 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 long list of, um, of what I learned during my very many years in SNMA, I think it's something like ten or something like that, um, and and so it's been one of the best decisions I think I've made in my career, in my lifetime. But yes, yeah, so why? So I always wanted to be a pediatrician. Um, you know, I always wanted to care for kids when I was young, um, and and as I you know sort of progressed through school. Um, I and was involved in student government a lot um, I became more exposed to law and policy and and justice and social justice and um, and really being an advocate and so as a um, as a medical student uh, even before medicine I you know started doing a lot of community work did research at chop in violence prevention um, uh, just you know, really started to plant my feet in a area that was still relevant to healthcare, probably more like um, public health, you know, less clinical, um, but with this eye and this bend on on social justice. And so I think um, when I finally made the decision, part of it, like I mentioned earlier, was because of an alignment with the community, our, our folks who had sort of gone in that direction But another part of it was, you know, a curiosity about the other side of healthcare, um, and also this drive for justice and specifically, um, you know, uh, juvenile justice Mm -hmm. and this interest in advocating for children. So I actually went to law school to be a child advocate Um, and, and sort of, you know, was pivoted a few times because of more exposure. And, and influential mentors and folks in my life at, at times where I had to make some decisions. Um, but my first reason for going to law school was to be a child advocate. Wow. Go figure.
0: So for <laughs> students that are uh, considering pursuing the dual degree options, what was the actual process, you know, once you decided cause you had to put in applications for law school or take the LSAT or how did how did the nuts and bolts work of applying to law school?
1: So I applied to law school like like uh, any other law student would. I think it, you know it varies if you are at an institution, you're enrolled in an institution that has both programs, um, then it you know your process may be a little different, um, you know, and because it's you know it's all one institution and they may have a a, a, a way that you can apply to both at the same time from the very start. Um, that wasn't my case. I attended Howard law, uh, the Howard university school of law, (laughs) sorry. Um, you are a Howard grad, so you know how we are. Um, but then, I, you know, I, I attended, um, a small private osteopathic school in Philly, you know, I was in a totally different city. And so I approached Howard, you know, just like any other applicant, you know, fill out the application, took the LSAT, actually took the LSAT as a third year medical student. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was an experience. Um, but I did well, you know, and I did well in third year and maybe it was because it was just a different, you know, it was a a break from clinical medicine to, to sort of do something different. But yeah, you took the LSAT, applied, um, and I really wanted to go to Howard. So I was super excited when, um, you know, Howard sent me an acceptance. And I think the other nuance of the process was, um, the academic leave of absence that I had to take from medical school to go to law school and just going in and having those meetings with my, um, with my Dean. who, funny story, funny story said to me, um, after three years of, of being, um, an engaged medical student in student government, even at medical, in my medical school and having worked with that administration and with that Dean, um, who remembered my interest in law from the very first year, but, you know, whenever I spoke with him that third during my third year and said I wanted to go, he said, yeah, we, we totally see it now. We totally see. <laughs> we <laughs> totally see it now, now that we know you. And we think that you're probably not going to come back, um, that that you're going to go out into law and there is going to be a market for you and you're going to absolutely love it. And you're not going to make your way back to medicine. That's what they told me. Wow. So, um yeah, yeah, well, isn't that something? It's something. Yeah. Well, you're still um, in the
0: process of writing your story, so you know who knows what the future holds.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Now, overall, did you find that your decision was supported, or were there people that um, didn't think it was such a good idea?
1: Yeah. So definitely both. Um, like any major, you know, decisions. Um, you know, my, my mom sort of tried to bribe me with a car, with my favorite <laughs> car, it was it a, a, a Volvo SUV, but, by, um, by, at the which, time. Which I drive and I, I do, do vouch for, oh, I
0: love a Volvo SUV.
1: <laughs> exactly. It's a great car. And I ended up getting it anyway. Yes. But, um, but, but yeah, she, she's just like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know, you've been in school for so long, like, you know, let's, let's get out of this thing. Um you know, but now she's super supportive. And now she's, you know, when my when I graduated from Howard Law, and I, you know, I was a trustee at the time, and I was hooded by, you know, former President Bill Clinton, and was the only student that received that honor. um, You know, she, she, she had to eat her Mm words. So, so I think so. So yeah, so there were definitely people who weren't super supportive at the time. But there were people who were. um, And, uh, and they supported me by encouraging me, um, by affirming me that, you know, I had what it took to, to really make this work and, and, and be successful, or by giving me information and connecting me to people who had done something similar. And, you know, years years later, 10 years later, because I started in 2010, 10 years later, I'm so appreciative of the folks who supported me, but also the folks who challenged me and made me it, you know, sobered me a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, it made me a little bit more judicious and um, and thoughtful about the moves that I made. Yeah. yeah.
0: And this is our first time actually talking, but I remember being at Howard, and I knew you were at the School of Law, and it was just like this, uh, your presence kind of preceded you. We knew this was this student who was this rising star, um, D.O., J.D., and then super high up in the SNMA leadership, super involved, and then became a trustee at Howard. I'm like, who is this person? Like, who does all these things? (laughs) Um, So it is definitely um, an honor to sit and chat with you.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that.
0: Speaking of the, the trustee, so what does a trustee do and how did you attain that position?
1: So, you know, I mentioned before that student government had become something that I really loved. Um, mainly because I found that I had this passion for organizational development and leadership and policy. You know, back when I was in college, my bread and butter, the things I loved to do was write policy in college. For the student government, wow. <laughs> and I think other people were probably let, you know, they, there were other interests um, that were being uh, explored in, as a part of student government by others, and I think I was probably in the minority of folks who just like to really put policies in place. That piqued my interest, and I had no exposure before then to that area, and so, you know, a trustee board, um, like any other big board of directors for an institution, is responsible for governance, high-level governance, fiduciary responsibility, meaning, um, you know, these this kind of package of duties, duty of loyalty, um, duty of care to the organization, but they are responsible for long-term planning and long-term thinking and strategy, sort of setting the big-picture goals for the organization, and then empowering the executive leadership to execute those goals and, and holding them accountable, asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. Man, I can't even I can't even overstate the importance and the experience and the, the lesson I learned about the power of asking the right questions or just asking questions in general. So um so that's the role of the trustee, you know, as for Howard University Incorporated, meaning the entire institution, the wow. Howard university hospital, all of the schools. Oh yeah. I mean, I, you know, some people talk about um, the time they met the celebrity or the time they went to this concert or the time that for me, that highlight stars in my eyes was my time as a trustee for Howard, because as you know, as a Bison, we have such an illustrious alumni base and, and that includes, you know, Alum and and non alum who serve on our uh, trustee board, and so I just encountered such amazing people. But I had this um, opportunity to sit and discuss and impact the most the most intimate parts of Howard and Howard is so intimately connected to American history that it's just, it was just overwhelming to have that opportunity and I reflect on it fondly daily. That's one of the one of my most um one of the titles I'm most proud of. But um, I was able to secure the role through an uh, through a big election. Okay. So Howard is is an, as an institution that that has student representation on its board, but they the students are full trustees. A, a lot of other institutions have student representation but they're non-voting. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they 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 sort of there for information or to provide insight, but they don't have committee responsibility and they don't have voting rights. And Howard is distinct in that that's not the case. Once you become a trustee, uh, regardless of whether you're undergrad trustee or a grad trustee, you are a full trustee. So um, I ran as a as a graduate for the graduate student trustee role, and um, I had to campaign for all of the professional schools professional and graduate schools across the campus. So the, the med school, the law school, nursing, yeah, everybody, I everybody I remember, that wasn't undergrad. Uh, yeah, a lot of work. I felt like I was running for office in DC. And, and in fact, several of our trustees, student trustees have gone on to run for office in various areas of the country just because the experience is so intense and so much like what it would include if you're running for a political office.
0: Wow. No, that, that's that's yeah. an incredible experience, <laughs> and you've affected the lives of so many generations of future Howard students and present Howard students. It's incredible. Yeah. So one of the other things that you you're interested in, or you've been influential in, is this group, the Dawa Investment Network. Can you describe that mm-hmm. for us and tell us, uh, you know, what that group's all about?
1: Yeah, sure. So Dawa was founded as a spinoff. Uh, group from a large uh, Black women physician Facebook group. It it came as a result of some folks uh, showing some interest in investment education and uh, a small group of us deciding to put an organization together to facilitate or respond to that interest. We are are fundamentally an investment education organization, but we learn by doing. And so uh, the women who are um, involved either invest in uh, large corporate public corporations through stocks or they invest in startups through our angel group. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool, actually. Very, very cool. So, it's been a very interesting journey because I, you know, never had a formal business education. Um, what I know about investments, I learned. As an early stage corporate attorney who was facilitating um, investment transactions for hospitals and physicians, physician groups. So I learned from being on the other side and basically said, you know, listen, there are a lot of communities out here who are making moves, yeah. big financial moves <laughs> that many of us have never been exposed to. Physicians who are becoming inventors, um, who are becoming entrepreneurs, and are developing companies and selling them within five years and, and becoming millionaires, multimillionaires as a result. And there's no distinction between their skill and ability and, and ours. Um, and so the only difference is exposure. Absolutely. And so, right. And Dawa was birthed in part to try to bridge the gap and expose, you know, more folks to so this other areas of healthcare. And you know, and, and wealth building uh, and the like. The other thing too is, you know, for for black women physicians, um, if they are married, uh, they often are the uh, breadwinners or or um, or maybe the the financial stewards for their home, and they have carry the responsibility for educating the family and and facilitating financial literacy of the family. And so the thought was, if we educate the black woman physician that we, and, you know, virtually uh, educate that her black family. And so, or, or her family generally. And so um, part of it was also just to, to facilitate financial literacy, uh, more financial literacy in the black community, you know, by, by making sure we know what to do. And also as high earners that we know smart things to do with our money, because a lot of times there's a gap there. There's so many things we just don't know. So, yeah, so that's Dala.
0: How many uh, members are you, does your group have?
1: Right now, our, our angel group has about 25 women. Um, our investment club has about 80 women. There is some overlap, but, but yeah, our numbers, so I guess our numbers are right around a little bit less than 100, and they're all over the country, every wow. corner.
0: And how long has your group been in existence? So it's
1: funny, it's, I think we're at five years, I should know the date and year that we were founded. It's kind of a blur. I I think it was
0: 2015.
1: Um, I'm pretty sure it was 2015. Um, And we started taking members in early 2016, I believe. So founded in 15 membership rosters been with us. Um, Most of them have been with us since the beginning
0: for about four years. And what kind of uh, folks are you interested in and bringing into your group? Or if they're interested, how would these... uh ladies get in touch and get involved
1: yeah so two things we you know our angel group uh invests in startup companies by um uh, people of color are all of our investors right now are our black um, entrepreneurs uh two men and two women we definitely field a lot of pitches that are for from physician entrepreneurs so folks who have ventures in the healthcare space but we also have investments in lifestyle companies. We all, we have an investment with uh, a company called Goal Setter. That's a financial tech company uh, run by Tanya Van Court. You may have seen her on um, on Shark Tank. Um, it, it's a super impressive company that teaches financial literacy to small children, helps them to learn delayed gratification of saving by way of a of a platform that's laid out for their use, not their parents' use on their behalf, but for their their use. Wow. And it's super cool. So we we hear from, you know, folks who are thinking about starting companies can always reach out and express some interest uh, that way to for support, you know, either for knowledge or for capital. You know, for those we don't invest in, we have opportunities to kind of connect them with, Incubator programs or other mm-hmm. investors in our network who are better suited to maybe support them. Um, for women who are um, comfortable and they are accredited investors, they meet the uh, federal government's definition of accredited investor and want to join our angel group, they can always reach out to me. Um, you know, my email is my name, Courtney. So just let me know and then I can sort of direct them to our lead angels, Dr. Monica Miller and Dr. Mary Fleming to, you know, facilitate their entrance into our group. But those are for women who are uh, a little, you know, have a little risk tolerance um, and capital that they are ready to, to invest. And then for those who want to join our investment club, you know, they can reach out to me as well. Our our current president is Dr. Robin Franklin Trailer. And uh, she's a pediatrician based out. I think a pediatrician, a family medicine doctor, based out in Texas. But that's a little bit easier. There's there's no income requirement. They make regular contributions, financial contributions, and then work together to determine where that money will be invested. And so, you know, folks who are interested in learning um, through that process can contact me at the same the same email.
0: I love it. I love it. Building some uh, generational wealth in our communities. Absolutely. I am so impressed like the number of hats that, that you're wearing. You served as the Massachusetts Black Law Association president mm-hmm. in addition to all these other uh, accolades and positions and then you recently won a pageant title, is that correct?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So so I'm glad that you asked me about that. So, um so sometimes in the in this all of these these heavy leadership roles, uh, corporate spaces, you know, you have you learn to take yourself very seriously and i encountered an amazing physician lawyer dr regina bailey who's an emergency medicine physician but was a patent lawyer as well wow. um, who is a fitness competition champion and also a pageant queen like five or six times over and i think she was a, an nfl cheerleader as well but and a and, a, and an entrepreneur with Jesus. a fitness supplement line <laughs> yes yes listen These black women physicians are doing the absolute most out here. Um, I'm so inspired by, so inspired by them. But I met Regina um, virtually initially and saw that she was engaged in pageantry. And I ended up meeting, uh, uh, I think it's Chesley, Chris, the the current Miss USA at a black lawyer, uh, black women lawyer function in New York. And her people, people she was with said, you know, you really should consider a pageant. You really should consider it. I said, yeah, no, I don't think so. Um, I'm a curvy woman. I'm not size zero. I don't think that's just for me. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like you really should think about it. And so so over the course of a number of touches for quite a while, um, more people sort of nudged me in that direction. And when I talked to Dr. Bailey, she said, you know, it's a great thing to do. Have fun to you know develop soft skills that maybe you don't have to develop in your uh, in your day to day career, or that maybe eroded a little bit in your day to day career, where you have to be so you know serious and so corporate, as they say, you know, and to wear beautiful dresses and to meet other queens and um, and develop this sisterhood, but also to have a platform to advance the things that you really care about without having to work through a, a larger organization, you know, and so one other, one other passion I have is adoption of foster care. It's very much related to my interest in medicine, which is in pediatrics, and my interest in my initial interest in law, which is in child advocacy. As a law student, and, and even as a current lawyer, I have uh, represented pediatric client who have been the victims of abuse and neglect or who, um, who have, you know, immigrated to the country and are trying to stay in the country. And so this issue of, of adoption and foster care, I've learned is so critical because there's so many children who are, are placed in the system um, that need homes and need foundations and, and, and healthy um, families to love them and sort of prepare them for adult life. And a lot of times with our kids that don't get that, they they sometimes become, you know, the adults that we're so concerned about. Right. Sometimes are homeless. Sometimes are incarcerated. And so to me, you know, we talk about the importance of preventative health, right? And to me, I'm like this adoption and foster care, by by strong, healthy, loving families, is preventative care for for our social our our social system. It prevents us from from really in, encountering some of the the major social ills and the financial drains that we see in our society. so so anyway, the pageant title pushed me to to take my fitness more seriously. Mm-hmm. you know bathing suit competition, so I had to kind of you like know, I to get right to make sure I can <laughs> represent well. <laughs> um, you know it pushed me there's nothing that will motivate me more than you know than a competition like that. Or, you know, having to stand on stage in the bathing suit to make you get your butt up and get in the gym. Right. And then developing my platform without the constraints or the foundation of an organization. So developing a platform and carving out how I'll move, how I'll advocate, who I'll partner with has been tremendous. And then this particular pageant. So my title is International Miss Massachusetts 2020.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you very much. Um, and now because of COVID it's 2021 as well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) thanks COVID. Um, but, but there are so many women in my system from all over the world and, you know, I love to travel. I love to meet new people and exposed to new cultures. And so now I get to work with women who are graceful and elegant and kind and passionate about service from, you know, Croatia and India, and, and we're sister queens, and it's amazing. So, you know, it's definitely a difference from my day-to-day. Right. Uh, but, um, and, not, and again, something else I thought I'd never do, but I, you know, I absolutely love it, and um, I'm grateful that I stepped out there uh, to do something different.
0: That That is incredible. I've heard of triple threat, but I've honestly lost count of the of – the... <laughs> <laughs>
1: You flatter me, Steven. Oh, you flatter me, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to take it all. Thank
0: you. <laughs> you earned it. So what would you say to those folks out there that are listening like, "Oh my god, she's accomplished so much. I'm overwhelmed. There's no way I could do half the things that she's uh, accomplished in her life thus far." What's your secret? you know, I yeah. know there's no secrets, but what would you say has helped you get to where you are today?
1: Um, I think self-awareness whenever students or professionals who are looking to make a career change reach out about, you know, tacking on a law degree or going to medical school or doing something, you know, unconventional. I always say, you know, I think it's really important to know yourself really, 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 really really well, and then make decisions that align with who you are and who you want to be and what you really care about. You know, I think sometimes we can get married to a track or a path or a title and then and then we we get close to the end of that road or we get into that goal and and we realize that so oh, it's it's great, you know there's we're unfulfilled. Um, and I think uh, while it's it's been a circuitous route for me, one thing I can say is that at each decision point I really was able to check in with myself and and make a decision that was that I felt really honored who I was at the time, and what I wanted to accomplish at the time and mm-hmm. how I wanted to live my life at the time. Um, and so I think that's the that's the key to a happy life is to know yourself and make decisions according to what you want and not necessarily what other people want for you or what you think you should want.
0: Well, Courtney, I have asked you a lot of <laughs> questions. The floor is yours. If you, you know, anything that we haven't covered that you want to mention to our listeners?
1: Yeah, so only thing I I would mention is, man, there's just so much out there. There's just so much out there that you can do. And I think the real challenge of being in high school and college is exposing yourself to as much of it as possible. So that when you do make a decision, it's thoughtful, it's informed. um, And like I said before, it's aligned with who you are and, and what what impact you want to make on the world. Um, so I would say, you know, work hard in school. Of course, A's open the door. A's open doors and A's save money. Um, a's kind of get you out of the the, the, the loan space Absolutely. if you're going to do any of this professional degree stuff, right? But outside of working really hard, be open-minded and expose yourself to as much as possible. Talk to people about and ask them what do they do and what is it like from day to day. Set up informational meetings with both, you know, set up lunches, go to different networking events at different conferences, just really expose yourself as much as possible. Fact-finding, fact-finding, fact-finding before you kind of hone down and settle in to sort of what you want to do. And then also, you know, the power of relationships. I think if there is anything that has been incredibly impactful for me through this entire journey, all the different hats that I wear, it is the... Um, the knowledge that I've gained from people, not from books, but from people and their lived experiences um, and then support and, and how people have opened doors for me um, based upon our relationship. So, you know, I'll say get mentors, you know, nurture those mentor relationships, prioritize relationships over things and money, you know, because you're, you're really wealthy when you, when you have strong, vast uh, relationships. So, yeah, that's what I would say. And also, thank you to you, Stephen. You know, I think it's—I think this is incredible on top of everything else that you do is serving our country and, and keeping people healthy, um, and putting people to sleep and waking them back up. <laughs> you also are developing this podcast and giving people a platform um, and giving folks an opportunity to, to share their journey and to share the wisdom of their journey with the masses.
0: Courtney, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, for the listeners out there, you know, stay tuned. Tune in next week for another inspiring episode. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.